This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. Are you happy? Don't lie. And the ones who aren't, I'm not going to say no. But we're not all happy this morning. Um, and I don't think we can be happy all the time. But does God want me to be happy? That's kind of the question this morning. Um, there is a prevailing notion in today's world that has impacted, I would say, the Christian world that our number one priority in life, if you ask people, just go out on the street today and say, what's the number one, your number one priority in life? You'll get a lot of people that will tell you my number one priority in life is to be happy. To be happy. And some Christians... Here's how Christians would say that. Well, God wants me to be happy. And then they follow it up with some kind of action that has absolutely nothing to do with what God wants in their lives. What do you mean? Well, God wants me to be happy, so I'm going to buy that new dress. God wants me to be happy, so I'm going to buy that new car, that new furniture. I'm going to buy the ticket to that concert because God wants me to be happy, as though that's where happiness comes from, is those things. God wants me to be happy, so I'll go out with this guy, even though I don't have a clue if he's going to be able to lead me spiritually or not. God wants me to be happy, so I'll love whomever I choose to love. God wants me to happy, be happy, so I'll divorce this woman, I'll divorce this man who no longer makes me happy, because God wants me to be happy. And we hear those kinds of things all the time from professing Christians. We somehow make the leap from God's ideal of happiness to our own, and we claim that it's what God wants, convincing ourselves that my idea of happiness is what matters. Jesus told his disciples in the Beatitudes that happiness was theirs. When his kingdom arrives, you'll be happy, guarantee it. Be happy when my kingdom arrives. But before that time, and the kingdom hasn't arrived yet, we still pray, don't we? Your kingdom come. That's not arrived yet. But before it does arrive, and here we are living on this earth, we're experiencing a lot of things other than happiness, aren't we? How many of you were happy last night when you set that clock forward one hour? Of course not. You know, you say, why would I be happy with that? I'm losing an hour of sleep, exactly. That does We go through a lot of things in life that don't make us happy. You go home, and some of you are going to go home from church today, and you're going to get there, and poor little Fido held it as long as he could. You know? <laughs> and there's going to be an accident somewhere on your floor, and you're not going to say, oh, this makes me so happy. And that's just not going to happen. Things happen in life that don't bring us happiness. And it seems that by what Jesus said in the Beatitudes, we shouldn't expect to be happy all the time. And he knew better than anyone, Jesus did, how broken our world is. He understood that. It was broken then. They, they took him, the only begotten Son of God, the only perfect man who ever lived, and killed him for crimes that he didn't commit. So he experienced firsthandedly how cruel uh, this world can be. He taught these men, these disciples, 
were gathered around him as he sat down and began to teach this, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He taught them, you're going to go through some serious trials and you're going to go through some times of persecution in your lives. You're going to be hated by those who don't love me, he told them. They're not going to hate you so much, it's me that they hate, but it's going to come out on you. So he knew that just because they are Christians, and I would say the majority of us in this room probably would say I'm Christian, just because they were Christians, just because as Christians they possessed forgiveness of sins, and if you're a Christian, you do, just because they possessed everlasting life, and because you're a Christian, Jesus gives that to you, those things don't guarantee a life of nonstop happiness, do they? But he didn't want them to be happy. And he promised them that day of happiness will come, and, and that true happiness is going to be a reward for his followers who have these attitudes that he expresses in this passage that we call the Beatitudes. Now, if you were here last week, the word Beatitudes means blessings. And eight times in these verses here, and opening up Matthew 5, he says, blessed is this, blessed is that, blessed are you, blessed, and so forth. He gives eight blessings in this passage. But the word blessed here in this passage doesn't mean what a lot of us think. Bless me, I, the other day, I told you I had an experience last Sunday morning in a restaurant. As I left, the waitress said to me, have a blessed day. Um, the other morning, I was on my way to um, driving to Raleigh. I was going to a funeral, and, um, and it was for a former fire chaplain here in our town. And the funeral was in Raleigh, and I was dressed up in my, my uh, Class A uniform. And uh, so I went in. I said, and I was up early. I had to leave at 6.30 to get there. It was a 10.30 ceremony, and I stopped at 7-Eleven in Whalebone Junction to get a cup of coffee. And as I went in, and I got my coffee, and I stood in line for about five minutes, um, and, and uh, it was busy in there, and they had one cashier, and um, I finally got up to the cash register, and, 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 the, and the lady there at the register looks at me, and she says, you saw my cup of coffee? She says, is that all you're getting? I said, yes, ma'am. She waved at me. She said, go ahead and go and have a blessed day. Because I was wearing my fire department, you, you know, and so I was blessed. I was happy. I didn't have to pay for a cup of coffee. Jesus wanted them to be happy. And that's what the word blessed means, is happy. And in this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount that he gives, which is about living in his kingdom, the entire sermon is about living in his kingdom. He prepares us with these blessings. And he gives some attitudes, and that's why the title of the series is Attitude adjustments. He gives some attitudes. So we're going to tackle three of them today. The first three. He said, why don't we do them all? Because I think we'll find out the first three is about all we can handle. All right. Three attitudes. Attitude number one is this. Self-sufficiency doesn't work. Self-sufficiency doesn't work. It's the, not the right attitude to be self-sufficient. Look with me at verse three. The poor in spirit are blessed. The poor in spirit are blessed. Now, when we read that, it's real easy for you and me to read that phrase, the poor in spirit are blessed, and we focus on what word? Somebody tell me. Poor. The poor. And, when, and we kind of turn out, turn off the rest of the verse, but we see that word poor, and we think he's talking about those who live in financial poverty. After all, the Bible does say that it's the impoverished financially, economically, who seem to get Jesus said spiritual truth easier than the rich, didn't he? He said it's easier 
It's harder for a, a, a rich man to go into the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. The poor tend to depend more on God for things than a rich person might do. But he's not talking here about finances. The poor here is a descriptive word here, but it's not describing a person's checking account, but it's describing our what? The poor in spirit. He's describing our spirits. So last week we talked about how God created us in His image. And in His image, one of the ways to understand that is body, soul, and spirit. And the spirit, and each one of us has all three parts. If you don't have all three parts, then you're a dog or you're a cat or you're a pig or you're a cow or you're a lizard or something like that. Human beings have all three parts, body, soul, and spirit. And it's the spirit part that, that God has created in you and me that allows us to connect with Him. It's the part of you that the moment that you were reborn, the moment you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, the moment you said, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior, Jesus, you're the only one who qualifies, and you put your faith and trust totally and completely in Him, at that moment you had a new birth, the Bible tells us. You were recreated, created over again, given, become a new creation in Christ. And is that at that moment that, that our spirit is renewed, recreated, become new, and we're connecting with God. And at that moment, He gives us immediately some things. I, I'm not going to list all of them. But let me list a couple things that He gives us at the moment that we are recreated, the moment we were reborn. For me, I was a 10-year-old boy when I said, Jesus Christ, I accept You as my Savior. What did He do for me at that moment? One thing was that He forgave me of all of my sins, past, present, and future. He wiped them all clean. He blotted them out, the Bible says. They were gone. As far as east is from the west, cast into the deepest part of the sea. My sins were forever gone, forgiven. And then the second thing that he did at that moment, um, and there's many more, but the second thing that he did was he gave me immediately, at that moment, everlasting life. So don't think, don't get the idea that everlasting life begins when I die and I go to heaven. You're living everlasting life right now if you're a believer in Jesus. Your life will never end. You just get transferred from one place to another. He gives us everlasting life immediately. But before we became Christians, the Bible tells us that before we believed in Jesus, were reborn in Christ, we were all spiritually dead. Not just mostly dead, not partly dead, not somewhat dead, not semi-conscious. We were spiritually dead. Uh, we saw last Sunday as we had baptisms and we talked about, as I described the baptism before we, we began to baptize, I said it's a picture of someone who has died with Christ, been buried and risen, Paul says in Romans, to walk in newness of life. We were spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 tells us that. He and Paul writes and he says, and you were dead, you Ephesians, you Christians, the church at Ephesus, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, what can a dead person do for himself? Somebody tell me. Somebody brilliant tell me. Nothing. Not a thing. You were spiritually dead in your trespasses and sin. But something changed that. It says in your notes, chapter 3, but it's still chapter 2, verse 4. He writes, But God, who is abundant in mercy because of His great love that He had for us, made us alive took what was dead and made it alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in trespasses. And by grace you are saved. So Christian, your spirit today, 
My spirit as a believer in Jesus is alive. It's alive in Him. It's alive because of God's grace in bringing us, giving us salvation. And that, I think that's a great thing, don't you? Oh my. I think that's a, a, an amazing thing, don't you? And you're the, you're the group, not the 9 o'clock group, you're the group that got the extra hour sleep, all right? Our spirit is alive, even on Sunday morning. <laughs> We're alive. And we thank God for that. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Yet Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 5, and this, almost, this sounds contradictory, because Jesus says, the poor in spirit are blessed. And I'm a Christian, I so wait a second. Aren't we rich in Christ? Yeah, look at verse 7 in Ephesians 2. So that in the coming ages, and that's a key phrase there. In the coming ages, coming ages would mean ages that are not yet here. In the coming ages, He might display the immeasurable riches of His grace and His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So there are some amazing things yet to come. According to the, the Bible, God wants to display those immeasurable riches of His grace to us. And some of those immeasurable riches He gives us here and now, doesn't He? I think He does. Paul prayed for these Ephesian Christians. In chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 of Ephesians, he prayed this, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so you may know what is the hope of His calling. Hope is a great thing, isn't it? Hope is a thing that keeps us going. That you may know the hope of His calling. We can have hope now, but we also hope for things yet to come, don't we? So that you may know the hope of His calling. What are the glorious riches of His inheritance among the saints? So maybe you've inherited something in this earth. Maybe you know that when, uh, when your rich uncle dies, you're in his will, and, uh, and there's an inheritance there for you, and one day you're going to see that. Um, you don't have it right now. You don't possess it right now. It's coming later. The inheritance among the saints. The inheritance is a word that Paul used a lot to describe the rewards that you and I will get in the kingdom of God. The inheritance. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power to us who believe according to the working of His vast strength? He's talking here about knowing things and that we're, and He wants us to know these things now, these things that belong to us as a hope, and as an inheritance, both present and in the future kingdom. Now, these Beatitudes back in Matthew 5, they're kingdom blessings, and they are accessible to us today as citizens of Christ's kingdom. They are as the old hymn, and some of us who remember the old hymns, uh, they are as the old hymn, Blessed Assurance. There's a phrase in that hymn that says, Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. They are a glimpse of what's coming what Paul is describing here. When Christ Jesus reigns on the throne. And when that happens, the Bible tells us it'll all be good. But now, even for those of us who, and some of you no doubt are, might be living right now, walking with Jesus every day, filled with the Holy Spirit, in the Word of God, praying to Him, you're living as close as you possibly can with Jesus right here and right now. The fact of the matter is, even for those of us who are walking and living that way, we still live in a world that's ruled by evil. It's ruled by Satan. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, 
The God of this age, talking about the devil, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And so Jesus says, as he sits down here on this mountainside and he's teaching his disciples, he's saying to them that in this world, this age before the kingdom comes, you need to be poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. And happy are you if you're poor in spirit, so that you'll reap happiness in the kingdom that's coming. Well, what is he talking about? What does poor in spirit mean? Poor in spirit, again, it's not financially poor. Poor in spirit means that I understand that without Christ, I'm bankrupt spiritually. I'm spiritually bankrupt. Without Jesus, I have nothing. And so knowing that I have nothing without Jesus, I throw myself completely on Him. I depend totally on Him for my sustenance, for everything in life that I need. I cannot survive without being totally dependent on Him. And it's the person, the the Christian, who gets that. That I'm spiritually needy. I'm spiritually impoverished apart from Christ. That person begins to look to God to fill all that person's needs. That's why Jesus said a couple of weeks ago in Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these things, material things in life that we need, will be provided, added to us, given to us. It's the person who understands that who's spiritually bankrupt, that they're poor in spirit. That's why Christ wrote that these immeasurable gifts, immeasurable riches of His grace. He said, where are they? Did you catch that? These immeasurable riches are found where? Not in you and me. They're found in Christ. So we go to Jesus because we don't have it in ourselves. We don't deserve it. In fact, I think we need to understand this. We do not deserve to be happy, but we can find happiness in Christ. God's great. God's grace is His gift to us for what we don't deserve. So, to be poor in spirit means that Jesus says, if you're poor in spirit, you're happy. And here's why. He promises us possession and exaltation in the kingdom. Two big words. We understand possession, don't we? I'm going to have something. Exaltation means I'm going to be elevated. I'm going to be lifted up. I've been living poor in spirit in this life, and in my kingdom, He says, you're going to be exalted. You're going to possess it. He's saying much more. Some people want to say that he's saying here that you're going to enter the kingdom, but that's not what he's saying. You don't enter the kingdom by being poor in spirit. That's not what he said. You enter the kingdom how? What did Jesus say to to Nicodemus in John 3? You enter the kingdom by being what? Born again. Unless you're born again, he said to that man, you'll never see the kingdom of God. You enter the kingdom by a salvation experience with Jesus Christ, but you begin to possess the kingdom when you begin to have these attitudes in life for which He's going to reward you in His kingdom. So it requires this new birth to enter, but the promise here is for those already saved, those already guaranteed entrance. If you know Jesus, you're going to be in the kingdom. What you get in the kingdom is determined by how you live this life as a Christian and how He rewards us for that. He's saying you're going to get an elevated position there. We mean elevated position. Well, if you've been poor in spirit on this earth, Paul wrote, he said, 2 Timothy 2.12, he said, if we endure, speaking about the kingdom, he said, if we endure in this life, we will also, in the kingdom, reign with him. Now, it does get that. did you get those words? We will reign how? 
with him. Jesus explained this in his parables. You know, he says, some, some of you are going to get five cities, some of you are going to get ten cities, and so forth. We're going to reign with him. John, in Revelation, tells us in Revelation chapter 20 that during the kingdom, the thousand years of Christ's reign, believers will be priests of God and the Messiah, and they will reign with him for 1,000 years. I don't know about you. I can't speak for you, but I'll speak for me. I want to be part of that reign with him stuff. I want to be part of that. And so, well, I don't care about that. Well, Jesus wants you to care about it. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said these things in the Word. He wants this to be important to us about the kingdom that's coming. Preventing the reward is when we think as Christians here and now, you know, it's okay. I'm okay. I got it down. I'm, I don't need anything. It's when I think I can handle this life, this situation, this crisis without God. Sometimes I'll go up to people... And I'll say, hey, what can I pray with you about? How can I pray with you? And the answer that comes back to me sometimes is, you know, I'm okay. I don't need anything. If you ever come to me and say, Rick, can I pray with you about something? And I say to you, I'm okay. I don't need anything. Would you please just slap me around a little bit? Because that's not true. I am very needy. I need your prayers. And it's great to know that you're praying for me. Uh, when, when I get to the point where I say, I'm okay, I don't need anything, I don't need anybody, we're not poor in spirit. We think we're rich in spirit. And we're going to miss out on this reward in His kingdom. One sign that I'm not poor in spirit must be that I don't pray daily for God's sustaining grace on a regular basis. Alright, number two, attitude back in the Beatitudes, verse four. My heart is broken by what breaks God's heart. My heart is broken by what breaks His heart. He said, those who mourn are blessed. Those who mourn. Now, everybody in this room, I'm sure, has, has lost someone to death. A spouse, a parent, a child, a good friend. We've lost someone. And, and we hear Jesus say, those who mourn are happy. And we go... I don't remember so much happiness when I was warning, when I got the word that my good friend, my mom, my dad, my child, my spouse, my friend. I, I don't remember that being a happy moment for me. Do you? I really don't. Because we shed lots of tears, and we, 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 we sometimes we weep and we wail because of the loss. Morning hurts. Um, I, I spend more time than most with people due to my, my role with the fire and police departments, I spend more time with than most with people at the moment that they learn somebody in their family or a good friend has died. I mean, I'm there sitting there with them. And I'm either telling them that or they're with them when the doctor comes in and tells them that. And I've heard so many times in those situations when somebody has lost someone they love, whether it's at home or hospital, wherever it might be. I've heard this phrase said over and over again, and I, and I can't forget it. I hear people say sometimes, through the tears, they'll say, my heart hurts. My heart hurts. I don't think they're talking about chest pains as in a cardiac incident or having a heart attack. But their heart hurts, they say. Our hearts are broken when we have a relationship that has ended. And that morning 
when we lose somebody and that that sadness, that grief, that can go on for a long time, go on for months. For some people, it goes on for years because they just can't get by it. Yet Jesus says, hey, happy are you when you mourn? And we got to ask, what in the world, what kind of world is he talking about here when we do that? Well, he's not talking about this world. He's talking about the kingdom is coming, where the happiness comes from. Like the poor in spirit, it's not about financial poverty. Mourning must have a spiritual meaning as well. He's saying to these disciples, hear me now, that we as disciples of Jesus should mourn over things in our lives. Now, we know that God did not create evil. That wasn't His idea. He created us, however, to know and to love Him, and He created us not to ignore and rebel against Him. He knows that sin, God knows this, and we know this as well as Christians, He knows that sin is what nailed His Son to the cross. So we know that God knows how it feels to mourn over sin, doesn't He? Absolutely. And when you and I who are Christians are in fellowship with Christ, meaning we're walking with Him, talking with Him, we're sharing our lives with Him as we go through life, we begin to learn to share His hurts. And His hurts over this world become our hurts. We sorrow not only our personal sin, but we begin to sorrow. We begin to mourn for the condition of this world and how this world rejects Him. We begin to mourn those kinds of things and we hurt because we know that those who continue to reject Him in this life have a terrible judgment coming and we mourn over that. Mourning doesn't mean we ignore evil. It doesn't mean when we see or we hear it, we shut it out and pretend like it's not there. We can't pretend that all kinds of evil that exists, we can't, we can't pretend that it's, that it's okay somehow because it's become permissible in our society. Well, I guess that's just the way things are now and it's okay. We mourn over those things. God's not happy over those things, neither should we be. But we also know that while being grieved over evil, we are called to share with the world that in Jesus there is an alternative. And that's our calling to the world. We're mourning, and the world is evil, and the world is broken, and the world is not going in a good place. I often use, often see things that happen in the news, and, and my comments sometimes about those things. And here's another example, another evidence that we're circling the drain. Morally, we're, we've become so corrupt in so many things. Yet in Jesus, there's compassion, there's forgiveness, and there's grace. He demonstrated that so well. You know the story when the, um, the woman caught in adultery was brought to Jesus? It's in the Gospel of John. You know that story? Uh, that's one of my favorite stories. The Old Testament law that they lived under, the Jews lived under, that Jesus lived under, said you take that adulterous person and you stone him or her to death. You execute them. There was the death penalty for adultery in those days. And you say, why was it so strict? Well, it's because adultery breaks down the basic building block of society. Adultery destroys family. Adult, adultery destroys marriage and it destroys society. Yet, Jesus has this conversation with this woman and she's guilty, but he has this conversation and when it's all over, he offers her compassion and grace and get this, the opportunity to live a changed life because he says to her, I don't condemn you. Let me pick up any rocks. 
Jesus as anybody else. I don't condemn you, but I want you to get up and I want you to go back home and I want you to sin no more. Don't do this ever again. Your life is now changed. So I hope, church, and I say, church, here we are, this city set on a hill that Jesus would talk about later in the sermon. We, we are to be light in this world. I hope that as we are, we also don't laugh at the things that make God cry. That we don't make fun of the things that God mourns over. That we don't accept them as permissible when God says they're destroying mankind. I hope that we are a church full of mourners, heartbroken over the moral decay around us. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, that we can change any of it. We can't. That's not what it means. Adultery breaks down things in this world, and we ought to mourn over that. But we can. We can't change it, but we can share his heart. We can pray for him. I hope you do. Pray for him to rock our country with revival. That things turn back to God. Revival of biblical morality and forgiveness and mercy to us all. We can use our powers as citizens to give to Caesar what's his and to God what's his. But it starts with mourning. It starts with an intense sadness when wrong is treated as right. And he said, the mor- the mourn, those who mourn are blessed. Why? Because in my kingdom they will be what? Comforted. And that's what, where the happiness comes from. The mourning will be over because Jesus will be on the throne. This world will be totally transformed in how we live and how people treat one another. Number three, attitude three, verse five. I'm okay with being in the back of the line. I'm okay with being in the back of the line. Verse five, the gentle are blessed. Back of the line. What do you mean? Some people, you know, I remember in elementary school, you know, we would have to stand in the line to go to the cafeteria to eat lunch. Teacher would say, okay, it's time to get, go to lunch. And we'd all get in line. By the way, public school, the old timers will remember this. You young people will go, no way. We would stand in line and then we would say a prayer for the meal before we went to the cafeteria in public school. Good grief. In America. I'm not talking about Russia or somewhere. In America. But I remember standing in line, and there were those kids, and usually they were girls, but there were those kids that were just sweet, nice. And, and other kids would try to cut in front of them at line. You ever remember kids doing that, trying to cut in front of you at line? And, and, and the really sweet people didn't care. They let them cut in front of them in line and didn't say anything about it while the rest of us are wanting to throw punches and call the teacher and call them names and everything else in the world. Do you know kids like that at school that are just really nice and, and let people in the front of the line? They're just gentle. They were meek. They were humble. I'm not one of those who understood them. But deep down inside, I wanted to be like them. Well, depending on how you look at it, some of us in this room are blessed with uh, what, what's called a type A personality. You know type A's? Type A's, we're, we're driven, we're leaders. We don't want to be in the crowd. We want to be leading the crowd. Lots of us are firstborn in the family. So we grew up showing the other kids how to do and, and how to behave and kind of leading and guiding them. And then as we got a little bit older, we figured out they'll do whatever we say. And so we told them things that would get them in trouble, and we stood back and laughed. So, you know, I'm one of that group. 
And for us, it's easy to say, listen to me, and this is for everybody, whatever your personality, it's easy for us to say, well, you know, I'm just, it's just the personality that God gave me. Be careful what you blame on God, by the way. Listen, all of us are broken. All of us are messed up by sin. That includes our personalities that we've developed in life. And the great thing about being a Christian is that the Holy Spirit lives within you and me, and He's there to be a life changer. He's there to transform us. He's there to take us from where we were to where He wants us to be. Last Sunday, we saw that we are to be conformed to the image of Christ in Romans 8.29. And we were told in Philippians chapter 2, In fact, I want you to turn there, Philippians chapter 2, but we were told to make our attitude that of Christ Jesus. What does that look like? Philippians 2, if you're using the Bible there in the chair, page 1081. Philippians 2, I'm going to begin in verse 5, where we were last Sunday. Make your attitude that of Christ Jesus. And here's Paul says, now here's what his attitude was. See if this describes you this morning who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Now here's what he did. He was God in heaven, living there, worshipped by the angels, the creator of all the world, the universe, Jesus Christ. And his attitude had to be what's described here for him to die on the cross and be our Savior. Instead... He didn't use his, his being God as an advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave. Remember the, the great picture of that is at the Last Supper when he got down on his knees and he wrapped a towel around him and had a basin of water and washed the disciples' feet. A job that only a slave did. He assumed the form of a slave. And a slave does what? Whatever his master says. He assumed the form of a slave taking on the likeness of men, meaning he became human. And when he had come as a man, in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. That's Jesus. That's his attitude. He he was exalted in heaven before coming here, but to provide salvation, he had to humble himself become like a slave. The Creator took on the form of the created. And He became obedient, He says, all the way to death on the cross. And that's the attitude that He says, let your attitude be like Christ. Here was His attitude. How are we doing? I'm supposed to be, in my life as a Christian, conforming by the work of the Holy Spirit in me to be this sort of person, to be like Him. We live in a world that makes the most of people with great egos, don't we? We live in a world that looks down on the gentle and the meek. The world around us sees meekness as weakness, but it isn't. By nature, we get upset when someone gets what probably should be mine. That parking space in front of the supermarket, you know that you're eyeing and you're getting to and somebody whips in in front of you? You ever say bad things about that driver? Think bad thoughts? That next haircut, you're there waiting to get your haircut, and, and the barber says, next! And you've been there longer than anybody else, but somebody else gets up and jumps in the chair before you. 
That's our unredeemed nature, by the way, acting out when we get mad about those things. So to be meek, to be gentle, means I have to be willing to take on Christ's Spirit and become like Him. Taking on a lowly position, becoming the servant. It's gentle restraint. It's not that we're weak, but we are restraining our strength so that He might shine through us. It doesn't. It says I'm being meek or gentle means I'm willing to wait for God's timing to claim what's rightfully mine. And that's what that's what Jesus said there. He said, "Blessed are the gentle, because they will inherit the earth." He said, "The time is coming when you're going to inherit everything. It's all going to be yours. You won't have to fume and be upset because somebody jumped ahead of you in line. You're going to be first in line. That's what it means." You'll inherit the earth. It's the attitude that doesn't insist on my own rights and instead looks to put others first in line ahead of me. And here's where we struggle. I I have never lived in another country. I've visited a bunch of other countries, but I've only lived in the United States of America. And I'm thankful to be an American. I bleed red, white, and blue. I'm patriotic. You know, I stand and salute the flag. The whole nine yards, but but there's here's where there's a there's a clash, I think, for those of us who are Christians in America. Because remember, as Christians, we are citizens of two places. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven by virtue of our new birth, and we're citizens of the United States, whether we were born here or we gained citizenship another way, naturalized or whatever. There's a clash because as a citizen of the United States. I know my rights. And I want my rights. And I expect my rights. But sometimes my rights as a citizen of the United States clash with my rights as a citizen of God. Sometimes they do. Jesus says, be meek and you'll inherit the earth in my kingdom. He doesn't promise that to the pushy and the domineering Gentle people aren't inheriting the earth right now. They're the ones that everybody passes by and nobody notices. Some of them were passed over. They're abused. They're dispossessed. They didn't get the job when they probably deserved it. But if we learn to be like Christ and we rule our spirits now, Jesus says, you'll qualify to rule in my kingdom. The kingdom, you'll inherit the earth. And I look at these three attitudes. That's why I said we only have time for three. And I look at these three attitudes this morning that Jesus put there. And he says, this is what ideal citizens of my kingdom look like. And this is how you'll live your life here and now, thinking about and preparing for what's coming. And I look at these three attitudes. I I can't speak for you. But I look at them for me. And I say, God... I need you to do a whole lot of stuff in my life right now. I need you to conform me more and more and more to Christ because I see in my own personal attitudes these things are not always evident like they should be. I need you to work on me. Whether it's you're you're self-sufficient, maybe you're callous to the evil around you, or maybe you've gotten to the places I tend to do. When I see the evil around me, I just say, Lord, I don't even want to think about it. I need to think about it, and I need to mourn about it so I can pray about it. Maybe you're the one pushing always to get your rights. I don't 
I don't know who you are, what's what's going on in your life, what your attitude is. But here's what I, I do know, and this is what Jesus wants us to know. He can change you and me. He can change us, and he wants to. And this stuff that we're going through here in this these beatitudes, these blessings, this is heavy-duty discipleship. This is surrender and submission to the Lord. This isn't just play Christian stuff. But the reward, Jesus says, when we take on these attitudes, the reward will be great in his kingdom. So while we bow our heads and close our eyes, would you do that for just a moment and spend a few moments looking into your own heart? And, And please, we hear sometimes we hear sermons like this and we hear about things and we say, well, man, I wish so and so was here to hear this today. They really needed to get this. The person next to you, whoever it might be, Don't worry about anybody else's heart. Look at your own heart, your own attitudes. And if you see attitudes that don't match up with these attitudes, these beatitudes, let me encourage you, let me challenge you to make a commitment to the Lord right here where you sit to change. And again, as we heard about being spiritually poor, you can't do it on your own. You have to admit to the Lord, I've got no strength within me do this. I I need you to do it for me. I'm dependent on you. You have to admit you're spiritually bankrupt. And, and then when you come to that place of being admitting these things, then he can begin to conform you to his image. How are you doing with these attitudes? I'd love to pray for you. So if this morning you would say, you know, Rick, There's some things that I need Christ to work on in me, the Spirit to change in my life and these attitudes. And right now, um, I'm asking for you to pray for me. Um, Would you just slip your hand up in the air and say, I see me in some of this stuff and I want the Lord to change me. Just slip your hand up and hold it there for a minute. And I'm saying, Lord, break me and mold me and fill me and transform me and use me right now, here and now, for your glory and for your coming kingdom. Would you hold your hand up as we're praying? Father, we're needy people. We're poor. But we know that in you there are immeasurable, immeasurable riches in your grace. And so, Father, we come to you for those riches. We come to you for that life change. We come to you for that spiritual renewal, for that conforming into your image. We come to you and say, Lord, please change me. I want to be an ideal citizen in your kingdom. And I want it to show today, here and now. In Jesus' name I pray. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God. Love others, reach the world.